Hello and welcome to another edition of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name's Andy and I'm sitting here with three of the regular elves, James Harkin, Alex Bell and Anna Tajinsky. And we've gathered our favourite facts from the last seven days and we're now going to talk about them in no particular order. Uh, First fact is... Alex. Okay, my fact is, cows have friends... And they get sad when you separate them. Oh. How are they cow friends? Yeah, so basically, um, <laughs> Northampton University um, did a study. So cows are herd animals, obviously. Um, but, I'm seen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they live in a herd, but they get separated a lot because, you know, they need to be milked, they need to be taken to the vets, etc. Um, and Northampton University did a study uh, where they looked at cows when they were in a field and monitored all their behaviour to see which cows hung out with which other cows. And then they separated them out into different combinations. So sometimes they'd be removed from the herd in pairs, um, and sometimes they'd be um, with a cow they'd never hung out with before or sometimes they'd be with their best friend just, um, <laughs> don't know how we've worked that out bracelets but, you know. do they wear bracelets <laughs> yeah and um, sometimes they were on their own uh, and their each time their heart rates and cortisol levels were monitored um, and from that apparently we can work out um, whether cows get stressed or not and cortisol um, we should say is the stress hormone is that yeah. right yeah. Apparently, there's quite a high level of stress with integrating into a new uh, herd. So, if you take a cow and you put it into, I was going to say, how stressful could it be being a cow? Well, very. <laughs> fair enough. If yeah. you know what your demise is going to be, I would say very. But that's true. They but don't. Given how little is going on in their lives, I think any change is pretty stressful. I mean, if you're moving a cow from one field to the other, that's probably groundbreaking to them. <laughs> if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard. It's hard to tell if that counts as a friend. Well, yeah, we're kind of anthropomorphizing them, yeah. aren't we? I think elephants always feel like they're the clo- they're the ones that we're most justified in anthropomorphizing because they have they mainly have a weirdly human attitude towards their dead, don't mm. they? They mourn, don't they? Yeah, they mourn their dead and they bury them sometimes with leaves and earth and they'll come back to visit where the where the elephant died, their family member died. The thing about elephant graveyards is that a myth or is that real? That is a myth. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the idea that um, the elephants will go to a certain place to die and then you'll find lots of bones there because it's a special place for elephants. But you'd feel terrible if you were an elephant and everyone's everyone else said, hey, come on, we're going to the elephant graveyard. And you said, why? And they said, no reason. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the um, the cartoon, the Daily Mash of the turkey, um, which is saying just before Christmas, it's a bubble, speech bubble coming out of the turkey's mouth saying, hey guys, so are you doing anything for New Year? I'm free. <laughs> Real sad. But elephants, something really weird about elephants are on it is if you show them a piece of ivory and then a piece of wood they get much more agitated by the ivory and if you show them an elephant skull and then the skull of another large animal like a hippo skull they're much more agitated by the elephant skull really which seems to elephant skulls are quite scary though aren't they because they have like a big hole yes that is true the idea is that's where cyclops um, myth might have come from because it looks like there's a massive eye hole in the middle but actually it's where the trunk comes out from cow skulls only have uh, they only have bottom teeth so they're the we have two sets of teeth, obviously, as in we yeah. have top teeth and bottom teeth. They only have bottom teeth. And where the top teeth should be, there's just a sort of long area of bone 
So they they grind up oh. what they eat really? with teeth. Yeah, cows don't have upper yeah. teeth. So I would basically I was looking into how cow the digestive system of a cow. So they're yeah. they're ruminants, which means that they yeah. basically ferment the grass first. They eat so they pick up the grass by they actually curl their tongues round the grass instead of ripping it up with their teeth, which I thought was really interesting. Then mm. they chew it. Then they it goes down into their stomach and sits there for a while and ferments for a bit. So they get nutrients out and then they regurgitate it back into their mouths and chew it some more, which is the ruminating bit. And that's yeah. cud now. So that's where chewing the cud comes from and then they swallow it again yeah. winding your tongue around a blade of grass is quite sexy isn't it that's like <laughs> you know when Speak women for yourself <laughs> you know when like I've women... never seen a woman doing that <laughs> I need to go on more picnics <laughs> <laughs> I bet cows tie cherries in knots as a final uh, yeah. uh, that's what I was thinking of what's that you know when you tie a cherry in a knot with your tongue and then that's kind of shows that you're yeah cherry it. stock that, that sounds yeah. incredibly difficult, and I don't think it's anyone's ever... It's not that ever... hard. I can do My that. brother can no. do it. Yeah, I yeah. can do it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not, not as hard, hard as you think. What? Once you learn how to do it, it's pretty easy. And you're a babe magnet, then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can also pick up blades of grass with my tongue. So. <laughs> um, um, another animal which has friends is sharks, if you can believe. Sharks have friends. I don't believe that. Um, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> some scientists anal- analysed a group of a particular species of sharks which swim around together, and they couldn't work out if they were swimming together because there were just food sources which were close to each other or the home ranges were all in mm. the same place. But they discovered that actually some shark preferred the company of certain other sharks and actively avoided other ones, even though they were all in the same area if their territories overlapped. So they've concluded these sharks basically so have that, friends. It's that a social could relationship. Be, it could be that they have friends, or it could be that they just have enemies and they're hanging around these other guys because they're not enemies. What's the definition of an enemy or a friend? That's true. Yeah. This is it is quite interesting. They're like, why why would animals have friends? And there must be an evolutionary reason for it. And I read two possible explanations I'd never heard before. So one of them was the enemy's enemy thing. And uh, evidence for that is in dolphins, who they there were two dolphins who had avoided each other, so they didn't particularly like each other. And then as soon as another dolphin came along that wasn't part of their group and that was effectively an enemy to both of them, those two, first two dolphins started hanging out with each other, became bestest buddies, because oh. suddenly they unite against their common enemy. So I feel is happening with this podcast actually and then you guy and you're all ganging up on me and being horrible <laughs> shut up Alex okay, so. um, but wait um, the other the other good explanation I thought about why animals have friends to be attractive to the opposite sex so they studied macaques and there was a macaque who was super attractive like really good physical build etc but he wasn't very good at making friends with other males and women stopped shagging him so same as with humans I guess if someone's unpopular again we, we need to say female macaques <laughs> you're right I think just going back to the dolphins for a second, um, they hang out in pods, I think, to feed, though, don't they? Because they swim around in a circle making bubbles and trapping uh, fish in those bubbles so that they can eat them. So that's kind of a useful uh, reason for having friends, I suppose. I think the smallest unit of dolphins is two or three males. And they club up to guard the females, basically, that they uh, perceive as being theirs. And then several of those little units will group together to steal females from other males. (laughs) Um, But sometimes two of those, even larger units, will club up um, and form a kind of coalition, even though normally they're rivals. Wow. Then there must come an awkward moment where the dolphins have to decide which one of them actually gets to copulate with the female. Well, dolphins have a very varied sex life. So Um, they can all do it, you're saying? Yeah. They They have blowhole sex. Oh, and yeah. um, they have they have all kinds of sex. Actually. Blowhole jobs. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, there is one other sign that could be um, a, an indicator that animals are friends with each other, which is they measure the levels of oxytocin inside them, oh, which yeah. is known in humans as the love hormone, and if you have it, you, you are more inclined to trust other people and love them. And he tested... Uh, this is interspecies friendship, so that's very exciting. Oh, they like tested, Disney film friendships. Yeah, then. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, they tested a terrier and a goat, which were both young males, and they, they were used to playing and having play fights and sort of playfully nipping each other and rolling around and this stuff. And so they played for 15 minutes, and then after that, they measured the levels of oxytocin. The amount of oxytocin in the dog had increased by 48%, which they said suggested the dog was quite attached to the goat. <laughs> um, however, the goat's increase in oxytocin was 210%, and the, the authors of this said, we essentially found that the goat might have been in love with the dog. Oh, <laughs> no. Which is a tragic, so unrequited sweet. thing. <laughs> Isn't that great? Well, that, now that's sad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just so animal friendships, most people uh, thought that animals with big brains are more likely to make friends, and they found that fruit bats can make friends as well, and they have tiny brains, so that's quite confusing. But uh, they found this because things like there was a pregnant fruit bat, and they found that she was being groomed and hugged repeatedly by another bat who was unrelated to her, another female bat. And then when she gave birth, then uh, the the other female bat who had been grooming her and a third female fanned her with their wings. To keep her cool. Wow. Oh. Just being nice to each other for no reason. I don't know if bats can fan each other with their wings. That's amazing in itself, I think. Yeah, that's that is quite cool. cool. Now I wish I had wings. Yes, <laughs> so because that's the me. primary use for wings, isn't it? <laughs> the, the best thing is that you can use them to keep yourself cool. Um, <laughs> Well, well, you're gonna fly as well. Yeah. Yeah. I love the idea of James as a bird just sitting there, and our dog's going up to him, going, "James, why don't you ever? Oh, you can do that with them too." <laughs> um, D. H. Lawrence had a cow called Susan. Um, yeah, which he loved and wrote a lot about. And there's one other um, celebrity cow <laughs> that I found. Um, Elm Farm Ollie, also known as the Sky Queen, um, was the first cow to fly an aeroplane to fly in an aeroplane. <laughs> 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 the Sky Queen was the she first. She struggled with landing, <laughs> but for a while she was at the controls. Um, That's how I got over the moon, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so she was the first cow to fly in an aeroplane. Um, it was in 1930 at the International Air Exposition in Missouri. A man called Elm Ellsworth Bunce became the first man to milk a cow mid-flight, which he did in that flight. Um, and he, he parachuted cartons of milk down to the spectators below. And that is the stupidest, most <laughs> brilliant thing. That's fantastic. I, um, another thing that... Sorry. An, another oh thing that... <laughs> if that was intentional, Anna, you're fired from the podcast. <laughs> another thing that affects cow lactation um, is slow songs... Karen, if you play slow ballads to a cow, then their lactation increases. But if you play fast, clubby songs to a cow, I think it was described as Euro Club classics. Uh, there's no effect on lactation I at all. I wonder what the Euro Club classics are. Yeah. Eiffel 65, probably I, that one. Never I'm heard of it. I'm Moo. Dabba dee dabba day. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Okay, time for fact number two, which this week is James Harkin. Okay, my fact is that it's illegal to take a selfie with a tiger in New York City. What? <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> uh, well, it kind of speaks for itself, really. This is a new law that's come in, and it prohibits uh, direct contact between members of the public and big cats. Um, so it's like with travelling circuses or that kind of thing. And really it's that you're not allowed any photos, but obviously the press have put it forward as no tiger selfies, because apparently tiger selfies are a thing. 
on uh, dating websites. Yes, to make... I've just realised someone's told me about this, and to make men look extra manly, apparently they photograph themselves next to big, cool-looking animals. It's simultaneously manly and cuddly. Because you're cuddling a tiger, but it's a tiger. Oh no, Alex, Apparently. you've done it, haven't you? I've been to, I've been to, I haven't, I have visited, I have visited the blog, which I found this morning called Tinder Guys with Tigers. But actually, thinking about it now, if you're next to a tiger, the tiger is big and manly, and well, not manly, but big and powerful, yeah. um, and next to him, you're just going to look less powerful. Really? So yeah. you want to be next to a really weak, like, a hamster or something. There's yes. lots of baby tiger photos. Are there? Yeah. But maybe women will be very disappointed on the eventual dates, because they assumed that it was the tiger in the photo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, well, this is the technique that was surely first patented by Vladimir Putin. Oh, yeah. Who has photos <laughs> yeah. taken with every wild animal. But they're mainly yeah. dead, aren't they? No, a lot of them. No, well, he does. Very. He does some hunting ones. There is genuinely Putin swimming with dolphins on the yeah. internet. Dolphins who were previously enemies ganged up and became. <laughs> 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 He's trying to ban blowhole sex. <laughs> <laughs> that satire, right there. I was looking into history of selfies because mm. it seems quite like a modern thing. So I had a look. Um, the earliest photograph of uh, actually the earliest photograph of a person in Mer- in American history um, is is actually a selfie. Um, it was taken wow. by a, a guy called Robert Cornelius, and he took it in 1839. He was a lamp maker, um, and he was responsible for developing a process called daguerreopathy, um, which was a short-lived photographic process of some sort, um, which was popular during the 1840s. The process was so slow that he was actually able to set up the camera, then run into shot for about a minute or so, and then go and close the lens cap, yeah. which is quite quite more. And the photos were now. called daguerreotypes, weren't they? Yeah. That was it. Um, Wikipedia describes the photo, which you can go and see, as an off-centre portrait of a man with crossed arms and tousled hair. So I reckon it would do pretty well on Instagram, because that's that's pretty close to the mark. For the first yeah. selfie, that's quite cool. pretty well done. Yeah. yeah. Do we think that was the first self-portrait? No, because people have been drawing themselves for years. Yeah. But yeah. I had a look into what the first ever... There's a collection of <laughs> lines in a cave, um, which <laughs> may which may be a drawing of a face. <laughs> 27,000 years old. We're kind of assuming it's the same person who drew it, though, if we're saying it's a selfie. Exactly, yeah. It's it's open to debate. Not there are a few yeah. lines next to it that look a bit like a tiger. <laughs> um, 19th century portraits are fun. Um, have we talked about headless photos? Headless photos, so... Uh, so, yeah, Victorians like to like to photograph themselves headless, I think, and carrying their heads or with their heads in their laps. They managed oh. to doctor photos from a really early time. So you get portraits from the 1850s and 60s with they their heads They weren't necessarily doctored. They were like illusions. <laughs> they, they actually didn't have heads. <laughs> the the <laughs> photo was so prestigious back then that you would have your own head cut off <laughs> to have a photo made of you so that it would look better. No, totally lot, worth A lot of them yeah. would be, uh, like, it's hard to describe, but as in, they would be illusions, so uh, the you'd have two people in the photo and one person oh. would be sort of on the end of a table with their head resting on it and the rest of their body uh, sort of out of shot and then another person would be organised in a way that you didn't look like their head was there and when you line right. them up it looked like their head was not where it's supposed to be. Oh, that's very good. Um, and have you, heard of, have you heard of snap shooting, which was a game that people played? No. This is in the very early days of handheld cameras. It's so much fun. You had to escape while someone else tried to take a photo of you. Oh, really? Isn't that cool? That's um, quite good. Presumably it's a you bit like Laser Quest. Yeah, but it's Laser Quest where you don't know the results for three days until you've had the photos (laughs) developed. It sounds like a fun game. This is really interesting, I thought. Um, So so National Geographic published its first wildlife photographs in 1906 in the magazine, and two of the National Geographic Society board members resigned in disgust. 
Because <laughs> wildlife photos. They said it was becoming a mere picture book, and that wasn't what the National Geographic was all about. Wow. Yeah. A few more selfie things. You know these selfie sticks? <laughs> yes, of now? course. Yeah. Um, there's a thing called a belfie stick. Do you know what that is? Um, belfie stick. Is it well a belfie? I I know to my shame is a selfie of your own bottom. Yes. Yeah. So it's a stick to take a photo of your own bottom. That's right. A self colonoscopy kit. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not that. The the article I read said it's curiously out of stock at the moment, but is ostensibly a real product. So I'm not sure if it's even real. Okay. Uh, but the idea is that you hold it and then it takes a picture of your bum and then you can send it to people, presumably. Oh. You want okay. to see that kind of thing. Oh, brave new world. <laughs> um, uh, the Statue of Liberty is taking one continuous long selfie. I found this on Reddit today. Um, there's a, her hand, which is holding up the um, torch. Um, there's a camera, video camera, which you can stream a live uh, feed from online and it's pointing down to her face so she's taking one. Wow. that's pretty cool right that that's is great. really good that's such a good fact yeah vainest woman in the world <laughs> does anyone have more some things? stuff about things illegal in new york oh yeah mm. okay so it's strangely it's illegal to honk your horn in new york city unless it's an emergency so that's another film oh. accuracy then, because anytime there's an establishing shot of New York, there's a, the soundtrack is lots of lots of horns. No, 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 that's it's accurate. accurate. It's just that everyone's breaking the law. Oh, right. oh, okay, there's right. a constant state of emergency. Yes. <laughs> uh. um, it's also illegal for three or more people to dance in New York City. What? This what? is the rave laws that they have there. So what constitutes a rave? Also in the same place. Yeah, you can have yeah. to book an appointment with the city. Like, can I dance now, please? But what do you mean in the same place? Uh, it's okay if you're in your own home, actually, but it's got to be the people in your home have to be yourself, people who live there, or bona fide guests. It's legal in churches, and weirdly, it's also legal in premises licensed as retail cigarette dealers. <laughs> the cigarette buying dance you have to do in order to get your 20 more reliance. That's right. So if you're in a bar and three of you are dancing... You need um, a licence. You need a dancing licence. Otherwise, Also, const- the bar might have a dancing licence. Yeah, otherwise okay. it constitutes an illegal rape. And um, also, pinball machines were illegal in a lot of America, but in New York until the 70s. Wow. Uh, and it was because it was kind of gambling. And in the 1940s, Mayor LaGuardia smashed up a load of pinball machines in front of the press and threw them in the sea. He How? threw the press into the sea. <laughs> Recently, the mayor of Riga drove a tank over an illegally parked car to make yeah. a point. <laughs> Although he had illegally parked the car himself, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't just a random illegal parked car. What was the point he was making? That look at my big tank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, clearly, ostensibly Literally. it was park properly. Big issues in in Latvia. Well, we're talking. Today. Hey, we're talking about it now. So it's yeah. worked. If I, yeah, actually, guys, I'm double parked out there, so <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to have to go before the Mayor of Riga gets here. <laughs> All right, time for fact number three, uh, which is Anna. Yep, my fact this week is that morgue refrigerators in Turkey are equipped with motion sensors, alarms, and handles that open them from the inside in case anyone in there wakes up. Perfectly, perfectly sensible precaution. I think so. Does it happen ever? Still? Um, it has. Uh, I don't think there's been any instances. Certainly not in that place of it happening. Um, but I think there's a sort of widespread paranoia um, in that area of Turkey. It's in Malatya in Turkey, and they have yes, yeah, so they've got like door handles on the inside. There are sensors all around the inside compartment, so that if anything touches the walls, then automatically the drawer comes open, so the corpse is free to leave. But um, but corpses move around a little bit, don't they? Because of escaping gases and I think eventually rigor mortis. A little so, bit, but not very much. And also when they become zombies. 
Yes. Yes, that is a concern. In which case, why have we built easy exit more compartments? That's true. If the zombie apocalypse happens, these are going to be the first guys out, aren't they? Yeah, and they'll let all the others out. Um, in the 19th century, there was no reliable indicator for death. People did not know that it was your heartbeat. Ah, but that's still kind of true because it could be brain activity. That's true. But so I think actually there is a slight kind of argument about how you can actually say that someone's dead, whether it's a heartbeat, whether it's a brain activity, Fair whether enough. it's yeah. It's almost like we know so much now that we've blurred the boundary that we mm. originally set. Yeah. Well, Whereas they the, just didn't have a boundary at all. Though. They knew nothing at yeah. all of it, and they had competitions um, to enter where you would be given fifteen hundred francs if you worked out an easy and reliable sign of death. Um, the winner was the heartbeat, and it was the man uh, Eugene Bouchou who invented the stethoscope. Uh, and um, Eugene Bouchou sounds like what you might hear down a stethoscope. Yeah. Doesn't <laughs> it? <laughs> but it was fantastic, and he got a lot of criticism for being so impetuous as to say that you could bury someone only two minutes after ascertaining that they were dead. Everyone else said, no, 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 you should wait, and it took it took years. Did you say that he invented the stethoscope, sorry? Sorry, he didn't. Yeah. Ah, yeah, because the stethoscope was invented by a guy who was embarrassed when he had to take the uh, heartbeat of a particularly buxom lady, wasn't it? And the way that you used to do it was you would put your head right down next mm. to someone's chest, and he was embarrassed to, to kind of go into the breast area. <laughs> so he, he left her alone and said, excuse me while I go and invent something. I'll be back shortly. I think... I might be wrong about this, but I think he did it with a rolled-up newspaper or something and thought, well, this works quite well, and now I'm going to make something even better. I might be wrong about that last bit. I'm not sure. The other ideas suggested for the prize included um, sticking a thermometer into the stomach to see if you were cold enough to be buried. Into the rectum would be good. Uh, I don't think anyone suggested that for this one. Because you've got two different ways. One, the shock of having something up your bum, and two, the temperature. Yeah. Okay, well, they're not actually still taking uh, submissions, but I will, <laughs> I will pass it on. Um, well, that... they, they also had attaching pincers to the nipples of the presumed corpse, um, scal- just burning the patient's arm with boiling water and seeing what happened, <laughs> putting a multitude of leeches near the bottom, um, or sticking... That's a- similar to my one. Yeah. <laughs> or sticking a very long needle with a flag at one end into the heart, <laughs> and if the patient was alive and there was any movement, the flag would wave a bit. <laughs> but not for long. <laughs> And then when he died, it would come down to half-mast or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, one doctor said that the patient's tongue should be rhythmically pulled for three hours. <laughs> we should say a lot of this is from a fantastic book by John Bonderson called Buried Alive, and yeah, it has a huge amount book. of unbelievably interesting information about this cultural fear over the centuries. Since you mentioned putting stuff up the anus, <laughs> in the late 18th century, doctors William Hawes and Thomas Cogan decided the best treatment for someone who seemed dead after drowning was a tobacco enema. Oh, um, yeah. And so they used to shove things up your anus, didn't they? And that had like a dual purpose of testing if someone was dead. Because... And giving you a nice hit of tobacco. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it was thought that, first of all, it would warm up the drowned person by pumping tobacco up their bum. And second, it would stimulate their respiration again. Um, and it got a lot more popular when they started doing it with bellows. So there were kits. So before this, they were just doing it with a, with their mouth to the bum. Oh, and... God, no. <laughs> so mouth to arse resuscitation. Yeah. <laughs> it was mouth to bum resuscitation, which was problematic because a lot of people had died of illnesses which involved quite a lot of like fecal matter being infected. So quite a few people who tried this, doctors who tried this, ended up dying themselves. Well, to be fair, they were supposed to blow, not suck. Yeah, exactly, yeah. They and did the, it wrong. But then 
once that doctor's died, presumably another doctor will come along and say, my God, this patient has died. I must resuscitate it. This is an awful chain reaction. <laughs> if you just stuck tobacco up someone's ass, then you're going to suck instead of blow because you've basically made a human cigarette. <laughs> it's going to um, be the sequel to the human centipede. Just, they used to hang those tobacco enema bellows up by the River Thames, where yeah. you would have life belts today or life wow. rings. They would just have sta- as standard. Have you guys heard of the Toten House? No. Um, so these were literally that means House of the Dead. Obviously, that's uh, the 19th century Germany. They're very popular. These were basically large halls, which are sometimes very lavish and ornately decorated, um, in which bodies were kept for several days um, to ensure that they were really dead. I think this is a pretty grim job. If you were an attendant at this hall, you possibly had 12-hour shifts waiting for any signs of life. Terrifying, horrible job. Very but grim. quite easy, actually. I mean, Sit there and watch a corpse. Not a lot of times at which anyone actually wakes up, I guess. Yeah, but if you miss that one time, then... Yeah, yeah. if you fell asleep for that one five-minute window. When that zombie apocalypse happened, they all came up. Yeah. And they're like, Jeff, what were you doing? You were supposed to be watching them. <laughs> just woke up in an empty hall and they're like, oh, oh. shit. Um, yeah, the Paris morgue, actually, um, was around the turn of the 20th century. It was arguably the most popular tourist destination in Paris and that's at a time when the Eiffel Tower was oh, yeah. built as well <laughs> they were getting up to 40,000 visitors in a single day um, they did, you see that with mental asylums as well they were in some weird tourist attractions last week I was in Portugal and anyone who follows me on Twitter will know this already but I went to a bone chapel it was in uh, Evora which is a town in the middle of Portugal and it was made by the monks and they took all of the bodies out of the town and then sort of put them on the walls in like some kind of weird tiling. Yeah, it's like tiling. Yeah. Wow. So it decorates the whole chapel. The best thing about it was I took a photo of it and put it on Facebook, and Facebook recognised the skulls and tried to make me tag them as my friends. <laughs> they thought they were people. That's creepy. So they've just got real skeletons. Yeah, real skeletons. Yeah. Hanging up. Wow. And they have actual dead bodies as well, but <laughs> when we were there, the dead bodies had been taken down for restoration. Yeah. <laughs> 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 But it was supposed to be a place where you would go and you would think about your mortality and, and mm. whatever. So, you know uh, Memento Moris? No. Uh, well, they're kind of things that are reminders that you're going to die, basically, right. and that, that all this is temporary and all, all flesh is dust and all of this stuff. So it's just something to remind you. So in lots of uh, medieval or Renaissance pictures, there's a skull there, mm. just to point out, uh, you're going to die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like watching Countdown. Oh, <laughs> the Memento Mori and Countdown could be the big clock. Oh, that's like, great. Dong. Dong. Oh, basically, as well as a Memento Mori, there's also a Memento Vivere. Oh, yeah, which is a really that? nice thing. It's a reminder that you are alive and to take pleasure in life. And you don't really hear much about Um So there was a thread of people who worked in mortuaries uh, comparing their experiences. And there was someone who had a job in a mortuary and they got in someone who died who'd been a hand model. And he said it was really weird because he went into the service, the funeral service that they were having, and they have lots of photographs up all over the place. And almost all of the photographs were just of this person's hand. <laughs> <laughs> so, this was a funeral of that character. Character from the Adams family. Yeah. <laughs> what was that? Thing. There was another one where a clown had died, and uh, the person was buried in full clown costume. The whole family were clowns. All the friends were clowns, and at the family's request, the funeral directors had to dress up as clowns as well. Didn't the shoes not fit in the coffin? <laughs> they well, they, have, they yeah. put him in the coffin, and all the sides fell out. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, and the final fact is my fact this week, and it is that Henry VIII had two official cradle rockers who were paid three pounds a year each to rock his cradle. I should stress, this is when he was a baby. Um, yeah, I had a great image in my head before you told me that. <laughs> three pounds a year would have been a lot in those days, presumably. It would have been more, but not a huge amount. And also my question is... Did they go in shifts, or did they need two people to rock one cradle? Well, his cradle was massive. Um, oh. It was five feet long and two feet wide. And this is the rocking one as well. This isn't just a crib for a baby. This is an actual rocking cradle. Um, suspended from a wooden canvas covered with crimson cloth of gold and trimmed with ermine. I mean, it was ridiculous. Nice. It was Henry VIII. He went in. Well, not at the time. It was just a small baby at the time. But his daughter, was it Mary I, had even. She had four cradle walkers. Four? Yeah, and she had two cribs as well. She had an everyday cradle, which was silver and gold, I think, and then a cradle of estate for special occasions for receiving visitors. The current queen has 733 cradle walkers. (laughs) (laughs) It just goes up every time because they want to outdo the previous one. Um, Ember VI uh, was was given a a baby replica of a court when he was not yet one year old. He had a chamberlain, a vice chamberlain. Chamberlain, a steward, a cofferer, lots of other staff. They were other they children. Sorry, they weren't other babies. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fantastic idea. It brilliant. Yeah. That, that's the most adorable thing I can yeah. think of. <laughs> They're all dressed as... Well, there's a little Thomas Cranmer baby and there's a Wolsey baby. That's how I imagine CBBs is wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um... No, so and when Henry VIII's first son was born, he Henry appointed him forty staff immediately, including a baker and a keeper of the cellar. For some reason, <laughs> yeah. it would be brilliant if they were babies as well, though, wouldn't it? I just love yeah. this idea of just a community of babies looking after you, like yeah. a tiny maybe yeah. a miniature Buckingham Palace. This is the Muppet Babies of the Tudor Court. I like yeah. it. <laughs> they didn't call themselves Tudor, did they? Didn't like that. No, what is that? It reminded them of their Welsh background. Tudor, and they didn't like that. Henry VIII uh, referred to himself as the embodiment of the union of the families of Lancaster and York, rather than Tudor. Tudor's and snappier, isn't it? It is snappier. It was like more, like 100, 200 years afterwards when it became more common. Um, moving down the line a little yeah. bit, Queen Victoria... Had, well, I basically think she sounds like she had a phobia of babies. She, yeah, she, she described them. them as rather <laughs> disgusting. Um, she described her own babies as frog-like and frightful when undressed. <laughs> <laughs> and she had nine. She When she was a baby, her father described her as as plump as a partridge. And more a pocket Hercules than a pocket Venus. I think she was quite a fat baby. Yeah. Hercules supposedly killed two snakes in his crib. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did. Uh, Some vengeful goddess um, released them towards him, didn't he? And he smashed them together. Is that where the rattle was invented? Yes. He killed the snakes, and they were rattlesnakes, rattlesnakes. and then he turned them around and used them as rattles. And someone was like, if I take out the snake aspect of this, it would make a great toy. Um, But Queen Victoria, named Victoria, very controversial. Victoria wasn't really a name in Britain at the time, was it? Um, Not a girl's name. Hmm. And she was named after her mother, who was German. A lot of politicians and men at court tried to make her change her name when she was going to accede to the throne. What to? Something more conventional. So I think Elizabeth was suggested Uh. originally. Hmm. Um, When the Queen gave birth to Prince Charles... uh, Prince Philip was playing squash at the time. Was he? Yep. <laughs> Did he leave the game? No, the Queen was in labour for 30 hours, but he he, he a played long squash. game of squash. Mm. He <laughs> yeah. must have been tired at he, the end of that. I yeah. someone was taking care of him. <laughs> well, he just comes and goes, oh, I'm exhausted. <laughs> what a day it's um, been. How was your day? <laughs> um, do you know swaddling? Yeah. Which is where yeah. you just 
restrict babies very tightly in their mm. movements for the first few months of their life. It's incredible that this happened and that we... Still happens around the world, yeah. I think. Yeah? To, yeah? to simulate womb environment, is that right? I don't know. And they used this used to happen. Babies who were in their swaddling clothes um, would sometimes be... Um, hung up from a nail on the wall, <laughs> which was to give their care. So you just sort of loop a bit of the swaddling over a nail on the wall, and the baby would just be entertained by its surroundings. This is according to the Victorian Albert Museum. To give their care as a rest and to entertain them with the surrounding environment. Like a ball. It's a really funny idea, like a wall-mounted baby. It'd be good if you had, like, sex tuplets, and they were just hanging up around the whole Yeah, room. or you could put them like plaster ducks. You could put them going up in a diagonal line. <laughs> It was phased out. I think it was widely perceived as being bad for the, the baby's health. Obviously. <laughs> um. Um, cradles and cots. Mm. Um, the first... In fact, actually, I was looking into cradles and cots and I started accidentally looking into prams. But the first pram was invented in 1733 and it was made to be pulled along. So it was like a small pram and it had a harness so it could be pulled along by a goat or a dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's adorable. Imagine a mini Henry VIII yeah. baby being pulled along by a dog. A dog and a goat who are best friends. Oh, oh God. The Should Disney we... film writes itself. <laughs> but pram, pram is short for perambulator. Yeah. But there was no one walking, I guess. That's the true. Dog, I mean, it was being pulled by an animal. Well, the dog and the goat would have been walking. Yeah. 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 Um, walking and... into our hearts. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, they called the first prams, um, that when prams started becoming popular in the mid-19th century, I think, they were called mail carts because they were based on design for mail carts when you just push pre- like big packages along. And because female babies weren't allowed in them. <laughs> <laughs> Sexism. I read that. There's one book, I've read this in, and I can't find it verified, but children's cots were initially used to be bassinets which would just sit on the floor and then they were raised off the floor due to a perception that there were noxious fumes that existed below knee level and explosive vapours that existed near the ceiling and that the middle air of a room was the healthy air you had to breathe. Technically, isn't that true? Because oxygen is flammable, so it'll be near the top, and carbon no, dioxide it's, is... It's the, um, the gas in the room just moves around too much due to yeah, convection. If it was a very still room. They were onto the right idea, and we're killing our babies by leaving them on the floor. Um... It's very unusual putting babies in cradles, having them sleep in cradles and cots and stuff in most parts of the world. It's really weird that we do that. Um, so, yeah, like vast majority of countries, I think it's pretty much unheard of and babies just sleep with their parents. Parents used to not really worry about washing their babies too much either. Oh, yeah. Mothers in medieval times would dry nappies rather than wash them. And in the book I was reading about this, A History of Childhood, this was because of the healing powers of urine. <laughs> and in, in bits of France, uh, people thought that if you washed a child's head, you would make it simple-minded. And if you cut its nails and hair before it was a year and a day old, it would be respectively mute and a thief. <laughs> Being mute is good if you're a thief because you make less noise. That's a really good point. <laughs> okay, he is a thief now, so we might as well make sure he's mute as well. <laughs> Please make sure he's Okay, cut his nails then. Um, <laughs> yeah, extraordinary. Can I just do one thing about an unusual job that I read today? Okay, so I was reading a book earlier on. It's called Sex on Earth. Sex uh, on Earth is that? <laughs> <laughs> that Sorry. They were talking about the way that horses have sex, um, specifically in stud. Um, so they have a stallion will come in and have sex with uh, with a female horse, uh, and they were explaining how this happens. And there is a guy whose one and only job is to hold the base of the stallion's penis while it is in the mare's vagina. And his job is to feel for the telltale throbbing of ejaculation so that he knows when it's finished. Oh, my goodness. Why does he need to know? <laughs> well, it's, it's so they can stop the, stop the 
act. But well, it'll, why do you need surely, to stop it, the act? surely it stops they anyway in nature. That much of a hurry that we need to <laughs> right the useful bit's over. What? I gotta say it's a brilliant book. It's by uh, Jules Howard. It's absolutely okay. Brilliant. But that's presumably why in nature you see a lot of um, skeletons of horses which have just died because they didn't know when to stop having yeah. sex. <laughs> Imagine how the the stallion feels during all that. Embarrassed, I presume. (laughs) I don't know if... I would if a horse turned up. (laughs) Started holding the pegs in your penis and his hooves. Did you just say I'm a stallion in bed? No, I said there's a stallion in our bed. (laughs) Okay, that's all of our facts. Thank you very much indeed for listening. We hope you have enjoyed it, and we will, of course, be back next week with another podcast. Until then, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at QI Podcast, and you can also follow us all individually on Twitter. James is on... At Eggshaped. Alex is on... At AlexBell underscore. I'm on at AndrewHunterM, and for Anna... You can email podcast at qi.com. But also hashtag GetAnna on Twitter. Um, Thank you very much indeed for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it and we have had a lot of fun. So see you next week. Bye. Bye.